Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was always going to be a historic night. The hopes of a nation hung in the balance. It was the most important football match for England in 55 years. But even before kickoff, things weren't going to plan. With tensions already rising, by the time three black England players missed their penalties and England lost the match, the crowd had turned. In the stadium and online, it unleashed a torrent of racist abuse. Players have, have had an incredible togetherness and spirit, which I think has brought so many parts of our country together. So they should be, and I think they are, incredibly proud of what they've done. For some of them to be abused is unforgivable, really. What does it tell us about who we are as a country? Because I spend a lot of time with fans, because I travel around the country, you do get a window on this society. And I think we're the best of countries and we're the worst of countries. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, football and the state of the nation. It's not often that football and politics collide so spectacularly. But to understand what's been happening in England over the last few days, we turned to two Henrys. Henry Winter, chief football writer for The Times, and Henry Zeffman, our chief political correspondent. Henry Winter has been covering England matches for 35 years, and there was no way he was going to miss Sunday. I knew I had to get there early because I knew there'd be so many fans there. So I got there early, and it's about five hours early. And the, the one thing you could detect immediately was underfoot, the beer underfoot. People have been there early. It'd be amazing to know how many were actually there. As it happens, Henry Zeffman was also at Wembley. The atmosphere was pretty febrile. I had been fortunate enough to go to a couple of the games earlier in the competition as well. And when you come out of Wembley Park Tube Station, which is the main way of getting to Wembley Stadium, it's at the top of Wembley Way, which is that long, famous straight walk up to the stadium. Usually there is a fun football atmosphere. 
lots of people singing and chanting, singing Gareth Southgate's name to the tune of Atomic Kitten and so on. Before the final, it felt a little bit different. I remember remarking to one of my friends as I was walking down, there were just a lot of children. By children, I basically mean 14, 15, 16-year-olds, albeit seemingly drinking. At various points, glass bottles were flung through the air, which obviously has the potential to go quite badly wrong. But it wasn't totally clear to me quite how bad things were going to get until we tried to get into the stadium at about 6.30pm, an hour and a half before kickoff. Inside Wembley, England followers, many without tickets, storm the turnstiles. 67,000 was the gate given. To my fairly trained eye, I would say there was another 1,500 that blagged their way in. It's called tailgating, where one fan goes in with a ticket and another one comes in very closely behind them. And because you've got an underpaid, overwhelmed steward on the gate, they just push through. Probably they're being abused on the way and they just don't want to say anything. With stewards overwhelmed and the police absent, others appear to take the law into their own hands. A dangerous, hostile environment for fans attending the nation's biggest game in half a century. The FA has launched an investigation after what was intended as a celebration of football at Wembley turned into a disaster for the national game and its bid to host the 2030 World Cup. It became clear that there were dozen, perhaps more, in my immediate vicinity trying to tailgate in between me and the people I was with, trying to effectively sort of ram behind us through the turnstiles. Anyway, I managed to avoid that. I got in. But as I got in and sort of turned around, I saw the stewards ejecting a woman who had made it through who didn't have a ticket. And in order to eject her, they opened what looked like a sort of emergency exit, which took her straight onto the concourse. But in opening those doors, they effectively opened the doors to dozens of those ticketless fans outside who then attempted to storm through. So what you then had, you had this one steward who'd been ejecting this woman, calling for help from other stewards. And you effectively ended up in a sort of battle of force between dozens of ticketless fans, four or five stewards attempting to close these doors, a few fans with tickets sort of joined in and helped the stewards. Anyway, in that case, they managed to get the doors shut. But periodically, as I stood on the concourse outside the stands, just chatting to my friends, we would see dozens at a time of ticketless people pelting through the turnstiles and straight from there out onto the stands. It felt like things could go quite badly wrong. I'm not sure the sort of little bits of footage which have emerged quite do justice to how febrile things felt and how close things were to going really quite badly wrong. I went to security. I spoke to seven different people. I asked for people with radios to contact people. They all came back and everybody said the same thing. We don't have enough staff. We can't do anything about it. We'll know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me completely if there have been cutbacks in terms of what the FA spent on policing costs because the police, their presence was minimal to non-existent, and which was crazy for a big event like that. The crowd was feverish and at times lawless. There was a nervy, edgy atmosphere across the stadium. And then, as three England players came forward to take penalties and missed, the tension turned, in some quarters, 
to racist fury. I knew when they walked up, as well as the need to keep their composure and keep their technique and go through everything that they'd practice in training, those three players would have had in their mind, they knew they missed, they knew what the reaction would be. It would be toxic and it would be racist. And that may have actually contributed to their slight nerves in taking the penalty. It was very clear, very quickly, sadly, awfully, that several players, but in particular the three England players who missed penalties in the shootout, Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho and Bakayo Saka, were already on the receiving end of vile online abuse. It shocked the country. A team who'd faced down criticism for taking the knee and standing up to racism was once more the victim of it. And these were players who inspired the country's respect, their values, their decency, their work for the less fortunate in society. If they were now being abused, then perhaps it's not our penalty-taking skills that really deserve a post-match analysis. But we always have, after tournaments, we always have a huge inquest into what's wrong with the England team. Actually, what's happened, and the players have triggered this in terms of their stances, is we're actually having a debate on what's wrong with England as a country, as a society, where we are with social and media abuse of black people, where we are with security in terms of the storming of the stadium. What do we want from society? You know, we want role models in, in life, whether it's in music, whether it's in politics, whether it's in literature, journalism, and certainly in sport. And I think you've seen over the last 18 months... Look, the real heroes in society have clearly been those at the front line fighting the pandemic, the nurses, the doctors, the scientists, the people who discovered the vaccine. But I think we've also seen that footballers have stood up and they've raised money. Footballers have stood up and they've supported food banks. Footballers have, have stood up and they've said children in this wealthy country should not be going to bed hungry at night. So that's why Marcus Rashford took on Boris Johnson, just as if he was taking on a non-league fullback and ran rings routing. This is a very enlightened and socially aware and socially responsible generation of footballers. I've been doing this job for, well, 35, 36 years now, writing about football. There've been some fantastic generations of England players before in my time. But what I really like about this generation is not simply their talent as individual footballers, and we've seen the attacking flair of Bakaya Saka and Harry Kane's goals and Raheem Sterling, the way he can turn defenders inside out. But we've admired their brains and their hearts as well as the twinkling magic that emanates from their feet. And I just think it's been fascinating for me as someone who's very proud to be English but has certain concerns about certain directions in this country, certain loss of principles, to see the players standing up for those principles. How much of that is the Southgate influence? Were these players sort of socially responsible anyway? What influence has Gareth Southgate had bringing them together? It reflects his personality. He's a man of principle, not really a man of politics. He's very patriotic. His grandfather was in the Royal Marines, fought in the war. That's very powerful in Gareth's life, the concept of service, of service to your country, service to your family, service to your teammates. And I think that's been reflected and echoed, certainly through the players that he has selected, but and certainly in their in the way they play. I mean, it's a team without ego. It's a team without a star. I mean, you can talk about Harry Kane and probably go for 100 million at some point, but he's not a starry person. On the night, I mean, were you disappointed 
by the fans. I mean, you talked about the build-up. You know, there was already beer underfoot long before it had begun. But as soon as England lost, something seemed to switch. And, you know, we saw some fairly violent scenes just at, at Wembley. Well, first time used to violence with England. I started out my career covering England, occasionally with tear gas in my eyes. It was far worse then. If you want to rewind to when I was started watching football in the 70s and 80s, the hooliganism. If you went to an England game, you knew you'd have a reporter with you on Hooli Watch and you'd have to cover it. And it's just a, it's a grim part of covering England. You have to keep mentioning it. But it is, it's expected. It has actually eased in, in recent times because of banning orders, because of CCTV, because of fans' organisations. The policing normally in the UK with fans is pretty good. I can remember it was terrible. I used to travel with a friend of mine who was a very distinguished writer who worked at The Guardian who would get abuse from England fans because they knew he worked for a left-wing paper. There was a hardcore right-wing pro-fascist element to England fans, pretty organised in those days. You know, National Front was very much part of a, a section of England's support back then. And how has that evolved? I mean, do you still detect that presence or has it become less organised? I just think there's an element of that in society, whether that's actually in a political organisation or movement like the National Front, who had a hold on parts of some clubs and some supports, so now I think there's just, you know, we're an island country, there's an arrogance. Again, breaking out of my head as a volleys world, because I see it, because I spend a lot of time with fans, because I travel around the country, you do get a window on this society. And I think we're the best of countries and we're the worst of countries. I think we've got, we've got amazing people in this country, as Gareth Southgate says, who do incredible things, sport, music, inventions, technology. We're a remarkable country. But there was also, there's something in this, it's difficult to generalise too much, but there's an island mentality. Whether it's a post-Brexit thing, I don't know. I'll leave that to sociologists to argue. But I think in the last three years, certainly my experience of covering England, there has been a rise of arrogance towards foreigners. There are racist elements in this country. I just think that, you know, I mean... If I talk to the players, they tell me that and I can see it at matches. You only have to look at the racist abuse of the mural to Marcus Rashford in Manchester. The England footballer Marcus Rashford says he will never apologise for who he is after being subjected to racist abuse online for missing a penalty in Sunday's Euro 2020 final. A mural of Marcus Rashford in his hometown was defaced following the game. Within hours of racist graffiti appearing on the mural, locals had covered the wall with messages of support, cheering Marcus Rashford on and paying tribute to his work on the pitch and off it in his campaign for free school meals. We love Rashford, Saka and Sancho. Uh, this one here, always our hero. And uh, just over here, We've got uh, these hearts here. Rashford for, for PM, Prime Minister. Uh, Marcus, you are adored by everyone. They really sum up um, the kind of messages here. This is the other side of the nation. So you get maybe one or two people who deface and vandalise the, the Marcus Rashford mural. And then the whole community and people from further afield come and just express this love towards Marcus Rashford and put up you know, all these stickers. You know, you may have missed a penalty, but 200,000 kids didn't miss lunch. You know, that showing that love for Marcus Rashford and his achievements. So that's the other side of this country. I mean, 
I don't know, it's, again, it's, you know, 55 million people. I've not met them all. But I think we are essentially a good country, but there is a very poisonous element in this country. One of the things that has often sort of fueled a lot of you know, bad behaviour amongst fans and even racism sometimes, or sort of certainly going after players, has sometimes been the media. You know, if you look at sort of past years, tabloid headlines, if, if a player fails, you'd get a pile on. I was really struck this time by the press the next day and that it was universally supportive. Has the, has the media's approach to the footballers, has that changed? Well, I think you've had a month of the media saying how wonderful the national team are. What a great reflection of a diverse society. We really love their principles. There's no ego there. We love, you know, Arise Sir Gareth, which I'm sure he'll still get his knighthood. These players are just really impressive. So the, the media can't then turn around and say, look, they've missed three penalties, let's pile them. I thought it was good to see the sport. I think you're right. I think the media has changed. And I think that comes back to it. Nothing that government's done, nothing that journalists have done. I think it's through Raheem Sterling's, what it was, 70 words Instagram post the morning after he was abused at, at Stamford Bridge. And he said that the media has to be aware that if you depict young black players in a certain way, whether it's online, whether it's on your back page or particularly the front pages, there will be consequences in terms of people who read that, absorb that, stand on the terraces, then espouse that. And that's what he, he felt. And I can remember going to see him in his house. He said that when he moved into that house, about five, six miles away, there is quite a well-known locally dogging site. And I think one of the media outlets had said Raheem Sterling moves in near dogging site. And he pointed out, he said, do you know how many other well-known business leaders live in this nice leafy area of south of Manchester? It's a really nice area. There are nice houses there, around there. But they didn't sort of pick out the chief executive of X company. They picked out Raheem Sterling. And so... Yeah, I think there's still a, a fight still to be won there. That's a small example of a much bigger problem. Raheem Sterling pointed to headlines which criticised him and other black players for buying their families expensive homes, whilst their white teammates were praised for doing exactly the same thing. Sterling was criticised for spending too much and for spending too little by shopping on the high street. Everything he did drew criticism. In December 2018, when he wrote an Instagram post describing how the media assault was influencing the racist abuse he received, it forced a rethink on Fleet Street. The Raheem Sterling situation made us all take a long, hard look at ourselves. And I just think I'd like to guarantee this room that we're trying to improve and strive to be better day in, day out. Now, the racism directed at the England team is forcing another rethink. This time, in Westminster. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, a message from an award-winning colleague. Hi, this is Tom Whipple, and I'm the science editor at The Times. Thank you for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Henry, take me from Wembley to Westminster, back to the day job. Talk to me about sort of some of the fallout after Sunday night. We started to see the racism that was taking over social media immediately after the match. It continued the day after, and that's when the politicians waded in. I arrived to work at Westminster on Monday morning, having had very little sleep and still feeling very sad. The worst kind of Monday morning. Exactly. But by the time I'd arrived, the most senior politicians in the land had already weighed in about this abuse. Boris Johnson tweeted just after seven in the morning, this England team deserved to be lauded as heroes, not racially abused on social media. Those responsible for this appalling abuse should be ashamed of themselves. And soon after, Priti Patel, who's the Home Secretary, said something very similar. She said, I'm disgusted that England players who have given so much for our country this summer have been subject to vile racist abuse on social media. It has no place in our country. And I back the police to hold those responsible accountable. But it also quickly became clear some other parties, some other politicians, didn't believe the government had the sort of necessary bona fide to make those sorts of statements. And then later in the day, it became clear that at least one England player took a rather harsh view of the words coming from government. That player, Tyrone Mings, retweeted Pretty Patel's message with one of his own, saying... You don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tournament by labelling our anti-racism message as gesture politics and then pretend to be disgusted when the very thing we're campaigning against happens. I think it's probably fair to say that Tyrone Mings really bust through a bit of a taboo in terms of how the England team interacts with, or indeed doesn't interact, with government. So he responded to Pretty Patel a good sort of 12 hours or so after she'd tweeted, quite late on Monday evening. Tyrone Mings, by the way, is an Aston Villa centre-back, influential member of the team. And it's also very important for context that his England debut in Bulgaria... The referee has clearly brought things to a halt here. We had fears of incidences of racist abuse... He received really awful racist abuse during the match from the Bulgarian fans, which was very audible and almost resulted in the match being called off. 
Tyrone Ming's tweet has now had almost 180,000 retweets and more than 550,000 likes. And it shook the political world. It brought back to the centre of the conversation a row which happened just before the tournament and then also in the early stages of the tournament around the decision by the England team to take the knee for a few seconds at the very start of, of each match as a gesture of opposition to racism. During the England team's warm-up matches, a vocal minority had booed the players as they took the knee. When asked about the booing, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, refused to back the players' stance. I just don't support, you know, people participating in, you know, that type of gesture, gesture politics to a certain extent as well. Before going on to say... It's all well to support a cause and, you know, make your voices heard. But actually, quite frankly, and we saw last year in particular with some of the, the protests that took place, I speak now very much from what I saw in the impact on policing. It was devastating. So implicitly there, she is making a critique of Black Lives Matter, capital B, capital L, capital M, the sort of organisation that is attached to the slogan, opposing some of their aims. She was asked what she made of the England fans who had booed the team and she replied Well, that's a choice for them quite frankly. Would, but, you, would you be booed well, if you're in the stands? Well, I, 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 I've not gone to a football match to even sort of, you know, contemplate that. She didn't throw her weight behind the people booing, that is important to say because I think some people think that she did say that she didn't do that, but equally she very much did not condemn them And tell me about the response to that in Westminster. I mean, there doesn't seem to have been a statement from the Home Secretary since then, but how did that go down? It plays into a broader question for the Conservative Party about where it should place itself on various cultural and social issues. I should say, by the way, that Boris Johnson, when he, or rather his spokesman, was asked in the run-up to the finals about taking the knee, initially was fairly equivocal, and then eventually, just before the tournament started, did urge fans not to boo the team. And I think he was effectively forced to come up with that clearer position because you had government ministers diverging in public on the question. So Nadim Zahawi, the vaccines minister, I remember maybe a couple of days before the tournament started, was out on the radio saying, I absolutely support the team taking the knee. The symbolism of reminding the world of how painful it is to be uh, subjected to the, the racism that uh, Marcus Rashford has been subjected to, whether on social media or elsewhere, I absolutely back. And what is more, the government and Boris Johnson do too. The Prime Minister has supported what, what Gareth Southgate and what the, the England team will do on the pitch. Which might have been fine if it hadn't been the case that the night before he said that, Gillian Keegan, who's a junior minister in the government, had been on the BBC's Question Time saying that she didn't support the team taking the knee. If you want to say, do I think it's symbolism more than action? Of course it is. Of course it is. You know, there's a symbol about it. But the most important thing is the action. But we've seen it's creating division. You see erupting in public the question on which the Conservative Party is split. If you want to see it as a divide over how to confront racism, which side of the divide to come down on. And certainly there are some people in the Conservative Party who think that Priti Patel and others were right, but there are also some in the Conservative Party, 
especially I think in the wake of what happened with Tyrone Mings and the sort of very visible row that Priti Patel ended up in on Monday night, who think actually, hang on, there is a danger here that the Conservative Party is going to end up marooned on the wrong side of a divide. Only more and more and more people are going to end up on the Tyrone Mings side of the argument, if we can call it that. Well, it's interesting because I expect there have been private conversations about this for a while. This week, though, it does feel like some of that is suddenly going public. We've had people like Johnny Mercer, Stephen Baker coming out and making comments which would have been unimaginable even a week ago. What Johnny Mercer and Steve Baker are saying is what other slightly less outspoken Conservative MPs and ministers and, and for that matter, cabinet ministers think in private. And it is that concern about effectively finding themselves on the wrong side of where actually lots of the people they want to vote for them are on the other side. So Steve Baker said... And this is in a tweet. This may be a decisive moment for our party. Much as we can't be associated with calls to defund the police, we urgently need to challenge our own attitude to people taking a knee. I fear we're in danger of misrepresenting our own heart for those who suffer injustice. Effectively, what Steve Baker is saying there is we are risking losing support, not just from the victims of racism, but also from those anti-racists who might be considering voting Conservative but are alarmed perhaps by the government's position on these issues. And I do think this is probably going to lead to a bit of a recalibration of where the Conservative Party is. I mean, you had, just before the tournament began, one MP, Conservative MP, a guy called Lee Anderson, he said he would not watch the England team while they took the knee. And he ended up boycotting the whole tournament. And that kind of very visible culture warrior stuff is just not where a lot of Conservative MPs want to find their party being, not least because it was not inconceivable that the team did quite well during a tournament and in the process became national heroes. When you look at everything that's happened since the match and you look at sort of, you know, the backlash, but also the backlash to the backlash, and you mentioned an awful lot of people coming out, for example, in Manchester and putting up supportive messages on the Marcus Rashford mural. Do you think this team has changed the country a bit? Definitely. The headlines and the front pages, particularly in the tabloids, follow the racist abuse of the three black players. The support for them, you know, our three lions, our heroes, that was huge. I hope it helped them in some way, but I think it helps the country. I think it shows that this racist abuse is unacceptable. I do think we are taking strides. I think the uh, the media, as you say, is far more bought in praising these players, supporting these players in their time of need. And I think next season, when Bukayo Saka walks out onto the pitch for an away game for Arsenal, I have a funny feeling that he will be applauded. I certainly know that when Marcus Rashford goes up to uh, Liverpool in March, the cop will give him a standing ovation because, okay, there's huge rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester United, but there's also huge respect for people who stand up for the disadvantage. Well, Henry, before Sunday night, there had been a lot of talk about Gareth Southgate and his team and how they were changing values, how they might even sort of have an impact on society, on, on our culture, because people would see them as role models behaving in a way they hadn't expected. And they seemed to sort of represent decency and values. There was a sense after the match that some of that had come crashing down. Now, at this stage, after a few days of national soul-searching, where do you think we are with that? I mean... 
looking at, for example, just the Conservative Party and, and the conversations now about whether politics should really be fanning the flames of a culture war, do you think there will be lasting changes that have come out of this? I think senior members of the Conservative Party will be more cautious about firmly taking that side of similar issues in future. I think that's for sure. I think if you want to see this as the sort of constant battle in Boris Johnson's head or heart, perhaps, between whether he wants to govern as Prime Minister as the Liberal Mayor of London who at various points has passionately proclaimed the benefits of immigration and has Turkish heritage that he's very proud of, or whether he wants to govern as the Boris Johnson who oversaw a vote leave campaign, which in the last week of its campaign told voters that they should vote leave or the UK would be flooded with Turkish migrants before very long. I think this probably pushes Johnson a bit more back towards the mayor of London, Johnson. I've been speaking to people in the Conservative Party who feel a bit sheepish about what their senior ministers have done, feel like they should have backed the team taking the knee early and enthusiastically. They could have just said, this is our national team, we respect and support their stand against racism and everyone should get behind them for the Euros. These footballer activists are not going away. They're going to be more of them. There's going to be another generation of them coming after this very enlightened, very empowered Marcus Rashford generation. The kids coming up them who are wealthy and have a voice as well as a footballing talent. Qatar will be very interesting with England out there. And, you know, if they warm up in LGBT shirts, then great. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Chief Football Writer for The Times, Henry Winter, and Chief Political Correspondent, Henry Zeffman. You can read more from both Henrys at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Edward Drummond and Chris Wade. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening and have a lovely weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.